but on the Hittites and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusite heard about it, that they all gathered together to fight with Joshua in Israel with one accord. And so, Father, tonight, as we just continue in this chapter, I pray that we would um, just take heed to what you're saying to us, to the lessons that you have for us. And Lord, uh, very important truths that are given to us here. And Lord, I pray that we would learn um, how it is that we can keep from being deceived from the enemy. I pray that we would just see your grace once again, how you work things out for good, and how you desire to give us victory in the battles that we do in our lives. And so open our ears to you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So last week we stopped at these two verses, and we related how it is that the enemies of the children of Israel, how they were banding together, in this case the Canaanite kings, to come against Joshua and the children of Israel because they had seen the great victory that they had at Jericho and at Ai. And we related it today, uh, how it relates to Israel today, how the world is more and more coming against Israel. And we talked about some current events. And it all relates to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So I do promise you we're going to move on from that. But I just want to say, if you want to read more about it in the update about um, you know, the diplomatic crisis between the United States and Israel that uh, was being reported last week, uh, the Prime Minister of Israel, ben- Benjamin Netanyahu, was in uh, Washington this week and met with the President actually yesterday. He was speaking Monday in Washington, D.C. If you go on Joel Rosenberg's uh, web blog. Uh, he has the, some of the best writings that I see concerning um, Israel and what's taking place in Israel and the political atmosphere, uh, how it concerns the last days. And so you can get on his website. And he did uh, a speech uh, Monday night. It was a fascinating speech. So uh, if you want more information and kind of follow up on that, you can go on his website. We got some of his books in the bookstore, Epicenter, Um, some of the other books that he has written there. And so I just want to pass that along. So here are these Canaanite kings at this time that are coming against Israel and the children of Israel. And so we read in verse 3, But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, that they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys and old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet and old garments on themselves, and all the bread for the provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp of Gilgal and said to him, to the man of Israel, We have come from a far country now, therefore make a covenant with us. And so we see here that the, the Gibeonites, they know that the handwriting's on the wall. That, that, that even if we ban and come and, and join in with these other tribes of the Canaanites, we're going to be defeated. Um, so they say, this is what we're going to do. We are going to come up with this plan to where we're going to put on our own old clothes and, and worn out shoes and bring our moldy bread, and we're going to come to Joshua there at Gilgal. Now, Gilgal was that place that they would set up camp right after they crossed the Jordan River. And Gilgal is that place where it's kind of their headquarters right now until we are going to see in a few chapters that they're going to begin to divide up the land, and that's where the different tribes are then going to go and settle into those places that they conquer. So right now they're at Gilgal, So the Gibeonites come and they say, let's trick them and and let's try to make them think that we're coming from a far country and make a covenant with them so we can be spared. 
And the Gibeonites, the thing is, is they're not pushovers. They're not sissies here. We know in the next chapter that Gibeon is called a mighty city. And the inhabitants and the men that are fighting there are called mighty men of valor. So they are men of war, men used to fighting. They're brave men, but they know the power of God um, that has been displayed against Egypt and against the two kings on the east side of the Jordan River. And they know that they can't defeat their God. And so they're coming to Joshua to deceive him. And what we're going to do in this chapter is in one of the things that I hope that we learn is that as we go through life and as we battle through life, we have an enemy, don't we? And the enemy Satan desires to deceive us. He is called the master deceiver. He is called the father of lies. And that's one thing that he will try to do to you and to me over and over again is he'll try to trick us and deceive us. He'll lie to us. He'll try to get you into that which is false. And when Paul was writing to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians, he was saying to them that these false teachers and prophets that are coming on the scene that you are uh, receiving and listening to, um, they seem to be saying great things and stuff, and they're claiming to be ministers of righteousness. But you need to know that Satan's ministers that they can display themselves and they can come on the scene pretending to be ministers of God. But he says, don't be fooled. Because Satan himself can transform himself into an angel of light. So he was warning the Corinthian believers, listen, that the master deceiver Satan, he can transform himself into what looks like light, what looks good, what looks like truth. And also we know that Paul would say to the Corinthian church there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that don't be uh, ignorant of Satan's devices. And we know that one of the greatest devices and schemes of Satan is to try to trick us and deceive us. He's very good at it. Satan is very smart. And that's a trick that we saw clear back in the garden, isn't it? In, in Genesis, where the serpent, Satan, comes to Eve and says, did God really say that you should not eat that tree, the tree of the, the uh, knowledge of good and evil? Uh, did he really say that you would die? You're not going to die. You're going to become more like God. And I think that gives us some insight how Satan, one of the ways that he will try to trick you is to make you think you can become more spiritual. And that's what Eve said, you know, wow, you know, I can become more like God. And it's a trick that he does today that we see even with the cults uh, in occultic kinds of practices that people get involved in those things, that which is fault, because they think they become more spiritual in some way. They can touch God in some way or become closer to God or become gods themselves. It's what the Mormons believe. The Mormons believe that if you're good enough that you can progress and become a god yourself. And, and so we know that that was the oldest trick that Satan used back in the garden. Hey, you eat of this tree and you'll become like God. So he is very crafty and deceiving. He's the father of lies. And I think that what this chapter is going to show us as Christians, how it is that we can keep from being deceived. And so here is the, the Gibeonites. They're coming to Joshua. They, they know that um, this is our only chance to be saved, is to come to them and deceive them. And so verse 7, Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? Now, back in Exodus chapter 23, in verses 23 and 24, the children of Israel were told, You do not make a covenant with any of the tribes of Canaan. 
And so here is Joshua saying, you know, where did you come from? And, and how do we know that you're not among us? And how can we make a covenant with you? In verse 8, but they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? So they said to him, from a very far country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for you have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shihon king of Heshbon, and Og king of Bashan who was at Astaroth. And therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you, and for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, we are your servants, now therefore make a covenant with us. And this bread of ours we took hot from our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new, and see, they are torn. And these are garments, and our sandals have become old because of a very long journey. In verse 14, then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. You might want to underline that second part of that, that long sentence there in verse 14. They did not ask counsel of the Lord. So here is the Gibeonites coming to Joshua with their old clothes, moldy bread, worn out sandals, and Joshua is suspicious. They're wanting to make a covenant with Joshua. We want to be your servants. And at first, it doesn't set right with Joshua. There's a hesitation that is there. Now, have you ever had that experience? And I think that most of us have had that experience where the external circumstances, it looks like, you know, this is the situation, but, but something doesn't set right with you. Something is, is, is um, causing you to be confused or to hesitate. And as Christians, one thing that we need to understand is that we've been given the Holy Spirit of God. And as the Holy Spirit of God has been given to us and dwells in our hearts, it is the Holy Spirit that desires to speak to our hearts. And oftentimes that I've found in my life, well, external circumstances perhaps present this, or this is a logical conclusion, but I just don't have a peace about this. I just have a hesitation, or there's confusion, or I suspect something's not quite right. And that, I know, is oftentimes the Lord speaking to my heart. And one of the verses that I know that I've relayed to you, uh, particularly over the last couple months and when we went through Colossians, is in chapter 3 of Colossians where Paul was praying for them. And he says, I pray that the peace of God would rule in your heart. And that's a very important principle for us to understand. Because for you and I, as we go through particular circumstances and situations in our lives, there are times where we need to make evaluations and decisions and stuff. And there are times where we think, ah, I'm just not sure about this. And so we have the Word of God that's given to us, that we can filter everything through the Word of God, certainly. But sometimes there's those specific situations where we're thinking, okay, do I move in this direction? Do I participate in this thing? Do I you know, purchase that item, whatever it might be? And you're not quite sure usually as a Christian, that is the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts. And I have found that to be true in my life. That when there's a situation where, again, it looks like it's logical we should accept this. It's, it's, it seems like this is what the circumstances are presenting to us, and we should go in that direction. But huh, something's just not quite right, Lord. And I know that it's a still small voice of the Lord perhaps trying to get my attention. 
And just as Elijah was there at the mountain of God, he ran from Jezebel there in 1 Kings, and he would stop on the way, and the angel said, Rise up, Elijah, for the journey is long. And then he went to the cave of God, and, and the Lord wasn't in the wind or in the earthquake or in the fire, but he heard the still small voice of the Lord. And in our journey in our lives, we need to be sensitive to hearing the still small voice of the Lord and have that peace that rules in our hearts before we really move out or make a decision about certain things. Of course, we always try to filter it through the Word of God, but I know that has saved me a lot of headaches. And there have been times in my life where I didn't have a peace about it. There was some question about it or some reservation in my heart about it. And I did move forward or went ahead and accepted what was being presented to me. And I realized that it wasn't what the Lord had for me. It, it, I was deceived or it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Have you ever had that experience? So the peace of God needs to rule in your heart, and that's very important as you pray about it. Lord, is there a peace ruling in my heart? And, of course, we always seek counsel in the multitude of counselors' wisdom. Seek God. And I have found that if he has that in my heart, I just wait. And if Joshua would have waited here, as we're going to see, then he wouldn't have had this problem that came upon him As we read in verse 15, Joshua made a peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. So three days later, here Joshua finds out the truth that this is the enemy. This this is the Canaanites. This is who we were supposed to make war with. And so we see that the problem was in verse 14, he did not seek counsel of the Lord. He didn't seek counsel of the Lord. And I believe that the Lord desires to guide us in every single area of our lives. I really do. When it comes to, should I buy this house or take this job or move to this city or with my kids, whatever it might be, that the Lord cares about the details of our lives. And oftentimes we need to hear from the Lord. And and I think it's important that we take the time to pray, that we take the time to seek counsel of the Lord, and then we take time to really listen to the Lord. Is he giving you a peace about it? Is he giving you excitement about it? You know, and then when you feel that and you sense that, that he's telling you to move forward, then you can move forward in those areas. But Joshua didn't have it. It was obvious in the text, isn't it? He's going, where did you guys come from? How do we know we don't, you don't dwell here? And all of a sudden they make this covenant. Three days later he finds out that you guys are, are parked next door to us. And you're ones that are inhabitants in the land. So we want to be careful, particularly, listen, this is important. Particularly when people come and they throw a little God talk at you. And that's where you got to be careful. And I've seen Christians where they can be so naive enough, anybody throws out the name of Jesus, praise Jesus, and you know, a little bit of God talk, they're really ready to accept anything that's thrown out at them. And you and I need to be wise in that. And we need to be wise in in everyday conversations and things that that we are listening to and and all those things that come our way, particularly when there's God talk. I know that I face that all the time dealing with people. Matter of fact, in the last week, uh, somebody who's calling from out of town and wanting me to, you know, the situation, can you to help this individual and all of this, always willing to help. But just listening to them, oh, they'll throw out a lot of God talk. Praise God and, you know, and, and all of this. And, but behind it, 
There's something that just wasn't right, something that isn't settling with me. And so we need to be wise and discerning. And Joshua didn't seek the Lord, and all of a sudden he found out that they were neighbors. And so verse 17, who dwelt near them, the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities. On the third day, now their cities were Gibeon and um, Sepharah and Bararoth and kerjath Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel and all the congregation complained against the rulers. And so then all the rulers said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. So verse 20, this is what we will do to them. We will let them live lest wrath come upon them because the oath which we swore to them. So they knew that they had to keep this covenant. Of course, we saw, didn't we, as we went through the book of Deuteronomy, that the Lord said that if you make a covenant, if you make an oath, you are bound by it, you are to keep it. So Joshua and the leadership made this oath that you guys are going to be our servants, we're not going to destroy you. The congregation is upset at them, but they're saying, listen, we've got to keep this oath, we've got to honor this word that we gave to them. In other words, two wrongs don't make a right. Right? And it's true in our lives. And I, I bet that every single one of us, and I'll speak for myself, okay, that there are times in our lives where we made a decision where I wish I didn't go this way or it was a wrong decision. And all of us have experienced that or we will experience that. Where we wish we didn't do that or, you know, we have to go back to, if you're a supervisor at work, to the people that you work with. I, I made a wrong decision. If you're a business of an owner, if you're a parent in a family, in ministry, in leadership, that there are times where I realize that that wasn't the wise decision, but this is where we're at, and we got to move forward. Now, the pressure of the congregation was, we need to destroy them, and Joshua said, no, we made this covenant, and we're going to keep it. We made a mistake, but we're going to keep this and we're going to do what is right. You know, that's what integrity is all about. When we talk about godly character and integrity, I think part of that what is, is not that any of us are going to be perfect and always make the right decisions. I think the Lord will keep us on track, but when we do make those decisions where I missed it, I didn't see it, that we need to have the integrity to apologize for it if we need to to go to the workers, to go to, you know, I go to my family, to my spouse, to my wife, to go to the congregation and say, you know what, I'm sorry, I didn't hear it, I didn't see it right, I made a mistake, I apologize. Some people think that apologizing is a sign of weakness. And they will absolutely refuse to apologize. I think it's a sign of strength. Because it is a sign where you're saying, I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to admit that I've done wrong and I'm going to confess it and then I desire to do what is right from this point on. And some people, they just will not apologize because perhaps they feel it's a sign of weakness or it's a sign they don't want to repent from what they're doing is wrong or it could be that they're afraid that people are going to hang it over their heads. But there are times in our lives where we need to say, you know what, son, daughter, or wife, or whoever it might be, I made a mistake and I'm sorry. 
And this is where we're at, and we're going to move forward in this area. And I pray that none of us would be pride, so full of pride and arrogance or fear that we would never apologize when those times come, admit and confess that I've done wrong. Confessing to God is primary, and then confessing to others. And a whole lot of relationships between husbands and wives and parents and children and family members and friends have been destroyed or fell apart because if people don't want to apologize or admit they're wrong or, uh, you know what, I'm going to dig in my heels. And I am not going to say anything and I'm going to hold my head high and, and it becomes pride is what it does. So Joshua says, listen, you know what, we did wrong. And we didn't take counsel of the Lord. But we made a covenant, and we're going to keep this covenant, and we're going to do that which honors the Lord. We're not going to go against the Lord and try to make up for it. And, and we're going to see that Joshua is going to continue to show godly integrity. See, that's integrity. Integrity doesn't mean that you're perfect. Integrity means that you're desiring to do what is right every day of your lives and desiring to be humble before the Lord and to move forward in things that will please the Lord. So we see here that they find out, and then verse 21, the ruler said to them, well, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them, and he spoke to them, saying, why have you deceived us, saying, we are very far from you when you dwell near to us. Now therefore you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. And so they answered Joshua and said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he had chosen, even to this day. So they would serve the children of Israel and become woodcutters and water carriers to the house of the Lord. And, but as we learn about how it is that we can keep from being deceived from the world and from the enemy, also I see in this chapter God taking a bad situation because they didn't seek the Lord and he uses it for good. Again, the Gibeonites, they understood the power of God and they would humble themselves and said, listen, we are not going to align ourselves with the other Canaanite kings to try to overthrow them. We're going to humble ourselves before Joshua, even though they came in deception, because we know that their God is the one that we cannot overcome his power. We've heard what he said to Moses that all the inhabitants are going to be destroyed and we know the handwriting on the wall. And the only way that we can be saved is to come with this deception and humble ourselves and become their servants. But I, I can't help as, as I look at this. These Gibeonites having the fear of God and humbling themselves before Joshua. And he said, we will be your servants. And, and that's what is Joshua saying, verse 27 that you're going to be water carriers, woodcutters, for the altar of the Lord in the place would he have chose, even to this day, that's going to be Jerusalem. And what is interesting is, is that the Gibeonites became servants at the tabernacle, just as Joshua commanded later on at the temple. 
It is also interesting that there's no record of them in the Old Testament of them, the Gibeonites, trying to pull away the children of Israel from their God. And I was, I was thinking about this, how they would serve at the tabernacle, they would serve at the temple. I was reading in my devotion this morning in Psalm 84 where the psalmist writes, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. And I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wickedness. And in a way, that's what the Gibeonites were saying. That we're not going to align ourselves with the other Canaanite kings, the wickedness, but we're going to spend being servants there at the tabernacle. And you know what? For you and I, I pray that our mindset is, you know what? I don't want to dwell in the tents of the world or the wickedness of the world. I'd rather be a day in your court is better than a thousand and the wealth and pleasure and prosperity of the world, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wickedness. Gibeon, interesting enough, also, if you do a little bit of study, became a priestly city. That fascinates me. And the Ark of the Covenant stayed at Gibeon, often in the days of David and in Solomon. First Chronicles chapter 16, you'll see it, and also First Chronicles chapter 21. And it would be in the city of Gibeon before they would put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple when Solomon completed the temple. At least one of David's mighty men was a Gibeonite, First Chronicles chapter 12. God spoke to Solomon at Gibeon, First Kings chapter 3. The Gibeonites were among those who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem with Nehemiah. And Nehemiah didn't have a lot of friends when he came back after the Babylonian captivity. So here is some people that really humbled themselves before the Lord were used of the Lord. And I believe they were ones that became followers of the Lord. And so the Gibeonites here, as they make this covenant, a treaty with the children of Israel. So chapter 10, it came to pass with Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai, had utterly destroyed it, and, and what he had done to Jericho and his kings, and what he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city and one like the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. And verse 3, Therefore Adonai Zadok, king of Jerusalem, sent to Homham, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lachish, and Deborah, uh, Deber, that is, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to meet me and help me that we may attack Gibeon, for he has been made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, and they and all their armies encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. So they hear that the Gibeonites have made a covenant with Joshua. They band together this this king of Jerusalem, Adonai Zadok, his name means Lord of Righteousness. He's the king of Jerusalem. I don't believe that he's a picture of Christ. I believe he's a picture of Antichrist. And Antichrist means in place of Christ, who in the last days will set up his throne in Jerusalem. That's a study for another day. But he forms this coalition of five kings that come against Gibeon because they had made this covenant. One of the things to understand is this, and I think that a lot of us do, that when you make a commitment and you settle in your heart 
that I'm going to serve the Lord, and I'm going to be a servant of the Lord in very simple ways, know that the enemy is going to come against you, and he will come at you hard. He is not just going to sit back and say, oh, you know what? I'm seeing Bill teach Sunday school and those children and loving those kids. I think I'm just going to give them a break for the next year. Or Jerry and Sandy are hosting a home fellowship or Jim doing worship or any of us that are serving. You know, that individual that's in their prayer closet praying, whatever it might be, the enemy is going to see that and then he's going to come at you very, very hard. Because he wants to do anything that he can to keep you from serving the Lord. And I think that we as Christians, we need to understand that because sometimes we can begin to serve the Lord and all of a sudden there's this attack, there's this spiritual warfare going on and it can throw us for a loop and we're thinking, man, I thought everything was going to be great and wonderful and, and, and it's hard and it's difficult at, at times. Understand that the enemy will do anything that he can to keep you from serving him, to keep you from being in fellowship, to keep you from you know other brothers and sisters he'll try to isolate you and he's very very good about it he has a lot of tools in his tool belts to try to pull you away and discourage you and then one of his tools that we've seen with the church of corinth is strife and envy and division he'll try to do that or try to get you to where you know what um i don't need to go to church whatever it may be i can be involved in these other things of the world that pull you away there's so many activities whatever it might be But the enemy will do anything he can to keep you from serving the Lord. He doesn't want you doing that. And we need to understand that. So here is the Gibeonites. They're going to be attacked by all these kings. So verse 6, the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. And so the Gibeonites asked for help. And one of the things that you and I can do as we feel the enemy coming against us, which he will do, we can cry out to the Lord, can't we? And that's what we are to do. Give it to the Lord. Cry out to him. And allow him to do the battle for you. Because it's his fight. And he's given us victory. We put on the whole armor of God, but the Lord will work on your behalf. And so verse 7, we see Joshua ascended from Gilgal. He and all the people were with him in the mighty man of valor. So we see Joshua here. He begins to mount up the troops, begins to move. Now, think about this. Joshua could have said, hmm, you know what? We can kind of just let the Gibeonites get wiped out here. And that would take care of all the situation that we had before them, kind of clean things up, and we don't have to worry about this covenant, and we'll just let these other Canaanite kings, if they want to destroy the Gibeonites... That's okay with us. We don't need to get into their business. But Joshua didn't, and that's why I believe Joshua had great godly integrity, didn't he? And that's part of godly integrity, doing what is right. He kept the spirit of the vow with them, and the Gibeonites were blessed because they had made their alliance with Joshua and not with those other kings. That is so important for us to understand as Christians. Who are you making your alliances with? Who are you being yoked with? We know that the New Testament says that we're not to be yoked with unbelievers. It doesn't mean we don't talk to unbelievers. It doesn't mean we don't try to minister to them. Many of us, if not all of us, we all have family members perhaps that 
that we love and care about, they're not believers. Certainly we're going to talk with them and minister to them and love them and have them over, but you don't be yoked to them. The activities, the, the things that they're involved in that will pull you down and do you in. So be careful who you're making your alliances with. And they were blessed because they made their alliance with Joshua and the children of Israel, with godly people. That's why this thing, church, is so important. That we just don't come here on Wednesday nights to hear a Bible study and Sunday mornings to hear a Bible study. That's part of it. We're here to worship the Lord and to edify each other and to build each other up, to make those relationships stronger. And I hope, oh, I hope, that you say in your heart that this is a good place to be. And the people here are a blessing, and this is my family, and these are my brothers and my sisters, and I want to align with them. And I want to fellowship with them. And that's the way my heart is. I feel so blessed, not because I'm the pastor of this church. I, I feel blessed because I'm the pastor. I feel blessed because of you guys. To allow me to be a part of your lives and to be blessed by just your love and, and your desire to come alongside and help serve and minister is a tremendous blessing. And I love being here. My kids love being here. My family loves being here. Sometimes I see Christians that they'll be here and, and they'll come and then they, you don't see them. And what they've done is they've gone out in the world and they made their alliances with people they shouldn't be hanging out with. They kind of pull them into trouble and pull them, suck them back into the world and things like that. So be careful who it is you're making your alliances with. And so they call out to Joshua, and the Lord said to Joshua, verse 8, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So we see that God tells Joshua once again, You're going to have victory. Don't be afraid. And they march all night from Gilgal, and they're on the move. Listen, if you want to experience, again, another principle in experiencing the fullness of God's blessing and experiencing that, 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 that abundant life that he has for you and for me, is you've got to be on the move. You've got to be moving. You can't just be stagnant. Jesus walks up to a man in John chapter 9. A man has been born blind. Spits on the ground, makes some mud with it, wipes it in the man's eyes and says, you go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so the man goes down, you know the story, he washes, he comes up seeing, doesn't he? Now, if we go to Israel next year, we'll be on the Mount of Olives, we'll show you where the temple was and the temple proper was and where that event would take place, that area. And then I'll show you down about a quarter of a mile away, down the hill where the Pool of Siloam was, where the old city of Jerusalem, the walls, would be down and surround that area. That man would have to walk for about a third of a mile from the temple proper all the way down to that pool. That man very easily could have said, what do you mean go wash in the pool? You just stuck mud in my eyes. I don't know who you are. You made things worse. I can't see. And how am I supposed to get over there? But he did what the Lord commanded him, and he came up washing. He was on the move. He went there, came up as he washed his eyes, and he came up seeing. The man in Capernaum in Mark chapter 3. 
is sitting in the back of the synagogue and Jesus comes in. He'd had a confrontation with the religious leaders and they're up front and all the unimportant people would have to sit in the back back in those days and the man with the withered hands back there and Jesus, he's angry with that righteous anger at the Pharisees because of their contempt for people and and because of their hardness of hearts. And, And Jesus said, you in the back, you stand up. Man stood up. Now, you stretch forth that hand, that hand that was withered. And think about that. That man, can you imagine if I said, you stand up and you stand up and stretch forth, you know, a hand that's withered. You know, that man, it took faith for him to do it, to stand up. He heard the voice of the Lord and then he stretched out his hand and as he dared to do it, God enabled him to do it and then he was healed of that. You see, what I'm saying simply is this. You can't just be stagnant. You need to hear the voice of the Lord and be obedient to to it. You need to to be on the move. But so oftentimes Christians are just kind of sitting there and they're not doing anything and they're bellyaching or, oh, it's not important for me to, you know, to to move out and what the Lord's telling me and I'll just kind of wait and, and it happens in very simple ways. Well, it's not, I don't, don't need to get up and do devotions. I don't need to go to Wednesday night Bible study anymore. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I don't need to go to church on Sunday. It's not important. And, and they just become stagnant in their walk. It took a lot of energy for these guys to move forward, but they're going to have a great victory. And it takes us expending some energy and some effort in hearing the voice of the Lord, being obedient to Him, standing on God's promises to move forward. And so here they're marching. In verse 10 we read that then the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Akaka, and they died. And there were no more who died from the hailstones from the children of Israel killed with the sword. So here God brings them great victory. Supernaturally brings this hailstorm, which would kill most of the enemy, more than, than the sword. And this is what's supernatural about it is this hailstorm that came. And I don't know, you know, if they're all kind of mixed together or what, but the hailstone hit the, the, the Canaanite, soldiers and not the children of Israel. It's a pretty good aim, isn't it? Pretty pretty amazing when you think about it. Can't help but think about the last bowl judgment, I believe, or one of the last bowls judgment in the book of Revelation right before the second coming of Jesus Christ, that there's going to be large hailstones that God pours out his wrath on a Christ rejected world. So this hailstone and then something even more of amazing, supernaturally, in the physical world, a miracle that took place. Verse 12, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and the moon in the valley of um, Ai, Jalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasser? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day, 
And there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. Amazing. You have the long day of Joshua here as Joshua prayed, Lord, we need some more light, some more daylight. And so make the sun stand still as he cries out, Stand still over Gibeon, the moon, the valley of Aijalon. And so the Lord stops all of creation. The rotation of the earth comes to a stop and everything just stops for his people. You ever had one of those days in the summertime where it's just beautiful outside and you're up in the mountains and you're just kind of sitting there in the middle and it's getting late afternoon and say, oh Lord, if only this would just last for a lot longer. You know, I've had a few of those days. They're up in, you know, in the mountains in summer in July and fishing with the kids and it's wonderful and Start seeing that sun starting to go down. Oh, Lord, if only we just had more daylight. And so I prayed this prayer, but it's true what God's Word says. That the Lord heeded the voice of a man, Joshua, but it has not happened since that day. Not been a day like it. What God will go and do to bring victory to His people But you know what? The greatest miracle is that God sent His Son to die on Calvary's cross for you and for me. And when we really, I hope that this week of Holy Week that is coming up, that we would really stop and think about that. I mean, God stopping the, the, the rotation of the earth, the universe, whatever He did. Some people think that maybe perhaps it was just the glory of God. I think the sun actually stopped. I think time stopped, whatever it might have happened. And that was easy for God because He's the creator of the universe. But to think that God would come in the person of Jesus Christ and come to this world to die for you and for me so that we can have victory, victory over death and over sin, and victory in our lives now as we yield to Him. That's the greatest miracle of all. And so this long day and giving them victory and the hailstones in verse 16, and these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave of Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave of Makeda. So Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them and do not stay there yourselves but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard and do not allow them to enter their cities for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Then it happened when, while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished that those who escaped inner fortified cities and all the people returned to the camp to Joshua and Makeda in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. Now, these five kings, they run, they, they bolt, they retreat. They end up to where um, they are hiding themselves in this cave. So they found out, Joshua says, listen, just put rocks over the mouth of the cave. We'll deal with them later, Okay. We're going to deal with them later, but right now we've got a battle to do. See, in our lives, when we're serving the Lord and we're doing battle, there can be a lot of distractions. There's a lot of things going on, and sometimes we have to put those things aside so we don't lose sight of the battle that's before us. And that's what Joshua's doing. 
and, and we can, you know, kind of experience that. Maybe, I know I can. There can be so many things going on. I don't want to lose sight what God has called me to do. There can be a lot of distractions. There can be a lot of people trying to pull me away from what God has really called me to do, and that is to teach the Word of God and be in prayer for you. And I've just got to say, you've got to hold this. And that's what Joshua was saying. Put it here, we'll deal with it later. And so that's what he does, verse 23. And so they did so and brought out the five kings to him from the cave. And the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, and the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. So it was, and they brought out those kings to Joshua. And Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with them, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging on the trees till evening. And that was according to the book of Deuteronomy. It curses anyone who hangs on a tree, but they were to take them down before the sun set. And so it was at the time of the going down the sun that Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave, where they had been hidden and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. And on that day Joshua took Makedah and struck it with his kings to the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. He also did the king of Makedah as he done to the king of Jericho. And then Joshua passed from Makedah and all Israel with him to Libna. And they fought against Libna. And the Lord also delivered it into his kings to the hand of Israel. He struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword. And he let none remain to it but did so to the king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachnish, and they encamped against it and fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lachnish into the hand of Israel, verse 32, who took it on the second day and struck it with all the people who were in it at the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done in Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachnish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left him, none remaining. And Lachish, Joshua passed to Eglon, and all Israel with him, and they encamped against it and fought against it. And they took it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword, all the people who were in it. He utterly destroyed that day, according to all that he had done to Lachish. So Joshua went up from Eglon, all of Israel with him, to Hebron. They fought against it. They took it and struck it with the edge of the sword, all its kings, all its cities, all the people who were in it. He left none remaining, according to all that he had done to Eglon but utterly destroyed it and all the people who were in it. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to Debar, and they fought against it. And he took it and his kings and all his cities, struck them with the edge of the sword, utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining, so he had done to Hebron as he did to Debar and its king, and he had done to Lachnish and its king. And verse 40, So Joshua conquered all the land of the mountain country in the south and the lowland, in the wilderness and the slopes, and all their kings he left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed. As the Lord God of Israel had commanded, and then verse 41, And Joshua conquered from them Kadesh, Bernia, as far as Gaza, and the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. So Joshua, in the southern conquest, he conquers from Gaza, which is over by the Mediterranean Sea, all the way over to uh, the other side, which is um, over by the Jordan River, to Kadesh, Bernia. To Kadesh, Bernia. So ring a bell with you. Numbers chapter 13, Numbers chapter 20. Where there was such defeat for them before. In the second year of their exodus, they went to Kadesh, Bernia, go take the promised land. Well, we're going to send spies in. They come back. We can't go in. There's giants. Remember that? 
And in chapter 20, where Moses struck the rock, Moses, you misrepresented me. You can't go in. There was such defeat. I want to end with this. Now they have victory. And maybe there's some area of your life where you felt like I've had defeat, 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 defeat in this area. Don't give up. The Lord wants to bring victory to you. He wants to bring victory to you. And sometimes we can get discouraged. Lord, oh, you'll never give me victory in this area. I just struggle in this. I just seem to be defeated. Don't give up. Keep crying out to the Lord. Be submitted to Him. Let Him work. He'll give you victory. He'll give you victory. And maybe tonight, maybe there's someone here that you're thinking, oh, I need to hear that word for me, Lord. And maybe some area in our attitude or situation where I seem like there's defeat, but Lord, I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to move forward. I'm going to walk in, in faith. I'm going to step out in faith. And I'm going to trust you because I know that the Kadesh Barnea in my life that you will give me victory. And so, Father, we thank you. And we thank you for this wonderful book that is before us that we can read and gain so much from. And, Father, I do pray that as we get ready to enter into a very special weeks, Palm Sunday, and the events as we reflect on what happened that last week of Jesus before he went to the cross,